about the last two months, I've been in various conversations, whether it's brethren and in particular with people in the community, and invariably in just about, well, every conversation with some of the ladies that I've had, those who cut my hair and what have you, uh, conversations with them, they'll talk about their, their marriages and some of the difficulties that they're going through. And I remember in, in one particular case, after I was talking to one of the, the workers there about her marriage with her husband, she said, you know, if you would have a Bible study, I bet we could have about 500 people in Spring Hill to come to it. I said, you bring those 500 people, and I got the study with y'all. <laughs> and, and I remember, I don't know if it was Jack or some of the, the young families are saying, you know, we'd like to have a Bible study about marriage here at Franklin. We think that it would be good for us, uh, beneficial for our walk and relationships. And so that's been on my mind for the last couple of months, and I thought at least not necessarily a series right now, but a lesson along the lines of marriage and from a passage that, well, frankly, is not all that uh, politically correct. When you talk about love, easy. Everybody love each other. Easy. We, we, we can say that. And it sounds good. It rolls off the tongue. But if we were to say, wives, submit to your husbands. Wives, respect your husbands. It doesn't have that same easy role. It's hard to roll off my tongue. I was brought up in a society, you just, you don't talk about things along those lines. You talk about earning respect. That's what we, we learn and we talk about it in those terms. And so, we're looking at a marriage based upon love and respect and we're looking at things from, from a standpoint that I hope will bless our marriage from a biblical standpoint. Well, here's what Paul says as he concludes his letter, after he says, not his letter, but this section, if you will, after he talks about how wives would submit to their husbands and then husbands love their wives, and then he makes a point. He says, I speak in a mystery. He's talking about Christ and his church. But that said, because I've been using this illustration of a husband and wife relationship, he concludes and says, Nevertheless, each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. And let the wife see that she respects her husband. And so, you know, when we look at a text like this, we have no problem with it. We read it and we nod our heads. We agree because it's in the Bible. We agree with the text and what it says. But agreeing with it and applying it are, well, two different things. You see, again, when we talk about loving, don't we all agree that husbands ought to love their wives? And we would even say, well, shouldn't wives love their husbands? Of course. But there's a reason why Paul focuses on the husband saying, love your wives. And when we talk about respecting wives, respect your husband, shouldn't a husband respect his wife? Absolutely. But there's a reason why Paul specifies the responsibility of wives in respecting their husbands. And we're going to look at these things because, well, frankly, I think we live in a time, not unlike many others, but we live in a period of time where we have a difficult, I guess, uh, application, applying men loving their wives and applying wives respecting or submitting to their, to their husbands. And so these are the things that I'm hoping that from a very simple standpoint, we're going to be able to answer. Well, the obvious question is, what's going on? When, when I look at just my 20 years being in the Lord, I see more and more divorces taking place among Christians. 
Now, I don't know if it's true or not, but it happens. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in here who have gone through divorce. And it happens, it seems to me, more and more, not just with uh, society, but in harmony with society among brothers and sisters in Christ. I've gone through it from a standpoint of my parents going through divorce. Not myself with me, but from myself. And, and I remember the heartaches of my mom and my dad. And there are things about it. So what brought them to that point? What brings you in, in your situation? And some of us may be in marriages where we've not gone through divorce, but this is going to be very eerily similar to some of the things I'll share. For instance, like this. What was once funny, what was once maybe tolerable, just doesn't seem to be as funny anymore. In fact, it's downright grating sometimes when you when you hear your spouse say the thing that, well, brought laughter to you years gone by. What happened? Is it old? <laughs> A joke? Or is he getting old? Or she getting old? And what he says or what she says no longer just doesn't have that same reaction from you. What's going on? How about we used to do everything together. Now we hardly do anything together. That happens in many marriages. They would say, you know, I love you. And, and you would hear it every day when you come home or throughout the day. And as time goes on, well, I already told you I love you. I have to tell you, I mean, I don't have to tell you again, right? You already know that. I told you on our wedding day. <laughs> I hear that joke. What happened? Well, it was so easy to share, honey, I love you so much. Now it's like uncomfortable saying those very words. And we go from I love you to I don't even know you anymore. Who are you? And we've been together, we've been married for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and I'm looking at you, I don't even know who you are. That's a very common phrase that is said among spouses. I've heard it myself. I've never said it to my wife. I never said, who are you? And I'm probably going to say it, but that's not because of, of that relationship. It'll be because of my mind not being there all the more. So I might say it from that standpoint. But you see, these are real things that take place. And it's scary to think for those who are young couples to say, is that what's going to happen? Far be it from you that that happens. And that's why we're having this lesson this morning. And hopefully, some things for us to consider in making those marriages that we have blessed and biblical, if you will. And so, when it gets to this point where we don't laugh at each other anymore, in fact, when we speak to each other, imagine the phone call you get from your spouse. Oh, what do you want? Imagine some other person who's not your spouse calling. Hey, how you doing? Different tone. Where do we get, how do we get to that point? And then spouses blame each other. You know, I wouldn't be so ugly toward my wife or toward my husband if he or if she would play the blame game. That happens in many, many marriages. And it's not then we try to justify why we are the way we are because, man, she just made me that way. Or he just made me that way. Or that we go through life, and I've, I've seen this because it's, happened in my own uh, 
family, my relatives, if you will, where we see no hope for marriage. We don't see the light at the end of the tunnel from some trial that we're going through in this husband-wife relationship. I just don't see any way out of it. Divorce is the only way. Or some continuing, albeit an unhealthy marriage. I know of families that don't believe in divorce, so they don't divorce. They don't have a marriage in the Lord. And they may go 50 years, 60 years of marriage, but never have a good one. Never have one that is well-pleasing to God. Gives Him glory. And so, when we ask the question, what's going on? You know, what does it look like? What? Well, that aside, what about Christians, husbands and wives who love God? Who genuinely love God? And genuinely love each other? but have some trials, have some difficulties. What are these spouses? Because even quote-unquote good marriages have misunderstandings happen. I only know of one brother in Christ, and, and the whole congregation was drilling the husband. One brother in Christ said, you know, I never had a single fight with my wife. And they were married, I guess, around 40-something years before she passed away this year. And he says, we've, we've had disagreements. We've had misunderstandings. We've never fought. How is it possible? Tell us your secrets, you know. That's very rare. In many marriages, you'll have misunderstandings. And why, why is that? I believe, here's the answer right here. Because men or husbands think and speak and listen like a man. Guess what women do? They don't think like a man. They don't speak like men speak. They don't listen like the way men listen. I believe that's part of the reason. And we're going to try and see if we can tackle this this morning. In fact, we were talking about it in our class in Ephesians, um, in Ephesians chapter 5, when we were going through verses 23 through 33. Look at some of those things. But, you know, how is it that we deal with these things? Is there a biblical answer to why we behave the way we do? And I believe ultimately there is, and this is the reason. We're selfish. The flesh comes out. And I want you to, I want you to know that I believe both men and women, at various times in their marriages, are guilty of being selfish. Are guilty of envy and jealousy. And we're told in James chapter 3, verse 15, verse 16, in that area, in verse 16 in particular, that where there is envy and self-seeking, when there is this kind of selfishness, this wisdom does not come from above, but it's from Satan himself. And that's where chaos lies. That's where division lies. That's where marriages that go from being how wonderful to happy. I believe it's selfishness. I believe it's the flesh. And when I look back and I talk to families who have gone through various divorces, many have admitted to me verbally saying, you know, man, I messed up. I, I, I did things that I know I could have worked on to do a better job. And, and then here's the things. And then they would list some things. And, and I'd always go back to James chapter 3 in my head when I'm thinking about what was being said. We're selfish in our nature. 
Every one of us, from children through adulthood. We want it our way, because my way is the best way. It's the smarter way, it's the more spiritually minded way, it's the whatever way, but it's the best way. And then we get into disagreements and what have you. But I believe there's something else. And this was going on with our Bible class. We're talking about this. We studied a little bit about it. And I'm going to go into a little bit more detail this morning. But I believe when you go back to the very beginning, and you look at Genesis chapter 2, and then particularly in Genesis chapter 3, where here is Adam and Eve. And they're given the responsibility of the garden. He told man in chapter 2, verse 15 following, through verse 18, you tend this garden, you keep it, you till it, if you will. You work this garden. And then he makes man, or excuse me, makes the woman from the man. And then in the third chapter, we pick up with the conversation that Eve has with the serpent, that crafty fellow, if you will. And he says, well, can you not eat of that tree? The tree of knowledge of good and evil, can you not eat it? And of course, Eve gives the information, well, here, if you do, here's what God said is going to happen. And says, surely that's not going to happen. Well, long story short is, they sin, they transgress the will of God. And in so doing, God cursed the serpent, or Satan himself, cursed the man and cursed the woman. And in verse 16, we pick up in this text when he is specifically bringing that curse upon the woman for what she had done. And in fact, First Timothy chapter 2 and other passages in the New Testament will refer back to this very curse with regard to the woman. What it says here in verse 16, it says over here, To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And so the, the question is, what is that curse? And so the debate among many people, when you read this text in Genesis 3.16, they say, well, the curse is, women, you desire your husband. Okay, now, is it a bad thing to say, wives, you shall long lovingly into your husband's eyes? That's your curse. If that's a curse, that's a good curse. I, I'd love, that Julie, every day, wake up and just turn over and look at me. Oh, <laughs> well, we won't go over to the nation. <laughs> but you get the point. If that's a curse... That's a, I don't know how to take that curse, but that's how some, I've read probably about 15 commentaries, and there were about two or three that bring it along those lines, if you will, that that's the curse. That you longingly desire for your husband and he rules over you. There's your curse. Or, and this is my personal opinion on Genesis 3.16, or you shall desire him the very same way that Genesis chapter 4, verse 7 says, Sin's desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Remember when Cain was guilty of sin? God says, Cain, if you do well, great. But if you do not do well, sin is at the door. And its desire is for you in the Hebrew, grammatically, it's identical to Genesis 3.16. The only difference is one is in second person and the other is in third person. Sin being third person, and in this case in Genesis 3.16 when he says to curse to the woman, he's speaking in second person, if you will. This is what you need to do. You need to desire your husband 
And here's the way then many of the modern translations will have to bring this very point out because of the grammatical structure. It is as if its desire is against you from a, the way we think in English. Its desire is to overcome you. And from a practical standpoint, is it not true, men and women, that in husband-wife relationships, there are in fact women, there are wives, who seek to usurp the authority of their husband? Is it true? Julie says it's true to me. And I think I have a wonderful, beautiful wife. It happens. It happens in many marriages. And it's not just because we live in a modern society um, with a particular movement known as feminism. This goes back from the beginning. It's whether or not the cultures suppress it in various ways or allows for it to flourish, if you will. But this is something that you have from the beginning. So either, unless there's a third or fourth or more uh, different way to look at Genesis 3.16, I believe this is the root. This is where it starts. Because of sin. And when you read passages like 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 following, where you can read, here's what happened in the beginning. And we can read the reason for that curse and see it explicitly as given for us then I believe we have some insight as to what is going on. And I believe that insight, then, is that we have this curse, and God wires us in different ways, and you combine that too, and here's the result in marriages. And I believe there's a silver lining in all this, and we'll look at it at the very end. And that, that silver lining, I hope, will be a blessing for your ears this morning. Well... If we're going to talk about love and respect, then I believe when you read a passage like Ephesians chapter 5, and you read along with Colossians chapter 3, Paul says the same thing to both congregations, both assemblies. Husbands, you love your wives. Wives, submit or respect your husbands. And what this is saying is not meaning that there aren't other things that are important or needed. Just as I was saying earlier, when he says, wives, submit to your husband, respect your husband, that doesn't mean that husbands don't need to respect them or it doesn't mean that they, they don't need love or other things. I mean, in other words, there's going to be multiple things needed in marriage to make it work, to make it successful, to make it beautiful or biblically blessed. But there's something primary. There's something that the wife needs more than anything else, I believe, that Paul is addressing. And for contextual reasons that we can talk about in the first century, that was known throughout um, Asia, or things that are going on today. We can look at that. And we'll see that here is this imperative. I want you to look at an example of this point, um, case in point, where when Paul is saying, you know, husbands love your wives, and wives submit to your husbands, he's not saying that other things aren't needed. And here's the case in point. In 1 Corinthians 13, what's the chapter dealing with? Love, right? But look at what he says. In 1 Corinthians 13, he deals with love from a standpoint that, above all, this is what is needed. And he's not saying that other things are not needed. He's just saying, here's the primary thing that is. It trumps everything else. He says in verse 1, Paul does, when speaking about love, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. 
And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned but have not love, it profits me nothing. What he is saying is that faith, these spiritual gifts, the sacrifices that are made, all of those things, you think we need them? think we need faith? You think we, we need various gifts? Now, we don't have the spiritual gifts, but do we need the gifts for the edifying of the body? Ephesians 4, verse 11 following. You think we need sacrifice for the body to flourish. But he says, none of these things matter. It profits nothing if love is not there. So in other words, these things are needed, but there is something primary. There is something um, foundational, if you will, that if you don't have this, then all this other means nothing. And the same thing is true, I believe, in what he is doing when he talks about the husband and what he needs to do toward his wife and the wife what she needs to do toward her husband. I believe there are things from things that I experience in life to what the Bible reveals primarily that says, I can understand why Paul said this. He says, without love, the other gifts are profitless. And so without love and respect, then we're going to have difficult marriages, more difficult than it needs to be. And so I want you to look at this. I want you to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. Notice when Paul was writing to the church at Thessalonica, what he was saying to them and, and how he was trying to compare their relationship with one another as a mother and child. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says here in verse 7, when he says, we were among you, he says, we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. I think it's a beautiful passage. What does not have the same ring is, we were gentle among you, like a big, burly hoss of a man. <laughs> that just doesn't have the same ring, does it? You see, when God made women, I mean, Typically now, men are hairy, gruff-looking, or lower voice. Kind of intimidating to children. Typically. Women, soft skin, just move, higher pitched tone of voice, softer tone of voice, typically. God physiologically made us different. And I believe psychologically made us different. That's why men think and listen and speak the way men do and women do the same thing. And that's why, Julie, I remember Julie saying before we had boys and we had just girls and our girls were so easy to, to train up. And the boys, man, they're rambunctious. They're all over the place. And then, having had boys and girls, are like, no wonder that saying boys will be boys. The things they do, the things they say, <laughs> and some of you young moms-to-be are like, hope we have a girl, hope we have a girl. <laughs> Boys are wonderful, by the way. They're great. They're blessings both ways. And I'm not just being politically correct. <laughs> but you see, even the Apostle Paul says, we were gentle among you. How? Like a lady, like a woman, like a mom. Why is that? Because I believe typically, when you have someone, one of your children that are hurt, who is the one that is there to nurture them? I don't mean to be this way, and I know I'm doing it in my mind from a loving standpoint. Dane or Levi or Nalia, Ali or Carly, or Pierre, they get hurt. Suck it up. 
I'm like, come on now, it's okay, don't cry, it's all right. Judas comes here. Difference in the way we approach things. I'm wanting them to kind of suck it up, move on, you know, work through the pain. I tell them, work through the pain. Judas says, come on, have some heart, Mitch. We're wired differently. And I think men typically, now there's all kinds of men, different ways, but typically, typically we lack these traits of nurturing and nourishing. God made us this way. It's not that we cannot be loving. It's not that we cannot be nurturing. But I believe from a, the way God wires us, it, it takes more work for men. Just look at the typical man in every household in this congregation. You're going to see it comes easier for women to be nurturing. And so I believe that when, when God was saying through Paul, when Paul is writing to the women, he says, husbands, love your wives. It's because I think we have a hard time doing so. I mean, there are some men, you stand out, women love you. And use you as an example for all men to follow your example and your pattern. Because you've got that love thing down better than many other men. But the typical man has difficulty displaying the kind of love that we're talking about from a sacrificial standpoint in doing what is going to benefit his family. Now, it's not that it can't be done. It's not that it isn't done. I believe it is. But I believe that was lacking. Now, from a contextual standpoint, in the first century, when we're looking at the husband-wife relationship, and this we've already dealt with in our Bible class, in the auditorium, but for the rest, think about this. In the first century, women were like possession. That's the way they were viewed. You can look at it in an Old Testament standpoint, read the Scriptures. In many cases, they were viewed as, in fact, possession. When Jesus came along and he brought forth his teachings, it was revolutionary for women to actually be on par with men, even from a, from a standpoint that when, when God looks at man and woman for salvation, you're the same. That would have changed the mind of many Jews and Gentiles looking at women in the first century. But here is Paul going one step further. And here is Peter going one step further, saying, First Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Husbands, be understanding toward your wives. Understanding? She's my possession. I need to understand her. Yes, you do. You're both heirs to life, eternal life. You're both valuable, and you treat her as valuable. You're one in Christ. So, this idea of love toward your possession was a change and shift from, from that to she's your wife. You know the way Jesus looks at the church? He cherishes the body of Christ. He sacrifices so that those who are in Him will be presented before Him pure and holy, saved before the Father. Now, what did Jesus do to bring that about? He loved his wife. He loved the church. And he says, now, husbands, that's the way you treat your wives. You love them. That's a difficult thing for many. Many lack that sensitivity. And when you ask women, there's been research, and you ask women, what is the one thing above everything that they want from their spouse, from their husband? 90%. 
said love. 90%. So 10% said something else, but 90% said love. Well, let's flip to the other side. When you look at the way men are wired, that same research asks the same question to husbands as they did to the wives. What is the one thing that you want more than anything else in your marriage? 85% said respect. I'd venture to say that many of these weren't thinking of Ephesians 5, verse 33, when this poll was taken. 85%. When we look at the way God made man, wired man, gave man responsibility, just as going back into Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, when he's supposed to be a provider for his family, a protector for his family. That's from a biblical standpoint. When you go through the Scriptures and see the roles of a father, the responsibilities of what he does, typically, that's what you see. And in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I was mentioning verse 11 following, I want you to look at that text here in light of our study in Ephesians 5 verse 33. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says over here, backing up to verse 8 and then focusing on verses 11 through 14, Paul says to Timothy, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness, clothes good works. In other words, let her be spiritually minded. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence. Either Paul is a male chauvinist, or he's saying something from a biblical standpoint as far as God is concerned. Those are hard words, what he just says in verse 12. And he gives the reason. He goes back to the beginning, and he says here, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. And so, you know, those seem like very harsh words that Paul is saying, and you can get real technical, well, but didn't Adam sin, and, and so on and so forth, and all that would be true. But here's what he says from divine inspiration. And that brings us then to the way men were wired. Men were wired to be head. And there are men that shirk this responsibility. And there are men that abuse this responsibility. And both are wrong. There are men that strive, maybe not perfectly, but strive to follow what the Word of God says. And many women typically have a hard time understanding this. Not that it's not understandable from a mechanical, mental standpoint. We can understand, well, okay, I read in Scripture that husbands are the heads of the wife. I, I read all that. But I've got to tell you, my husband, he's not the smartest guy. His decisions aren't the most spiritually minded. His decisions aren't the most beneficial to the family. I'm speaking from the wife's perspective. And that's what women will say from time to time. If they don't say it, that's what they think from time to time. Husbands and wives, have you ever had a disagreement in how you raise your children? From a rubber-meets-the-road standpoint, application? The three ladies I spoke with in the last two months in the community, all three, when the rubber met the road, when it was applying their, their beliefs and everything, ah, my husband, 
wrong. It wasn't best for the family. Awkward relationships. And it's hard when when a man is wanting to be that leader, if in fact he's wanting to be that leader, and he may make more immature decisions than you do. Let it be known he's trying to make those decisions. He's trying to lead. And many women have difficulty understanding that standpoint of what it's like to be in this situation where you want to be a provider or you want to be a protector or you want to to do things. Why is that? Well, what's interesting is when, when doing a lot of this research, one thing I found, and this is I got this from Emerson Egrich. He did a book called Love and Respect. And, and he says a lot of these points. In fact, one of the examples he used in his book was the greeting card market. And he asks the question, who buys greeting cards? Men or women? Typically. Women typically buy the greeting cards. Who writes the greeting cards? Because, you know, you have greeting cards for not just women. Sometimes it's for men. But who writes the greeting cards for the men? Women. Who writes the greeting cards for women? Women. Women write the greeting cards. Now, it's not that there aren't men that write greeting cards. But typically, the greeting cards and the whole market is written by women, for women as well as for men. I find that very interesting. Why is that? Well, when you look at the greeting cards and you read the greeting cards, when you have those sentimental things, and this is something that a, a man is getting for his wife, and he reads it, he goes, she's going to like this. Because it got those mushy words. She loves those mushy words. Now, not all women are mushy like that, but most of them are. You ask a man to write it, and many men are going, oh, what do I write? I've got to go find that brother in Christ or that male that writes those mushy words. But if I don't find him, who am I going to get? Well, go to the store, and there's a card, and it would be perfect. It's probably written by a woman, typically. The psyche of a woman is not on respect, it's on love. And those loving type words, those cherishing and nourishing type words, those nurturing type words in the vocabulary of those cards. But you don't see a psyche of respect. You don't have these cards going, oh dear, I respect you so much. Happy Valentine's. You don't have those words. And so, this is the psyche and this is the, the difference generally between men and women. And I'll even go on to say that, you know, when we talk about Earning respect, that's a very popular phrase. You never hear earning love. You never hear it. I hear sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes from children, I've heard it. I'll respect mom and dad when they earn my respect. Heard it. I've not heard it from children in the congregation here or in Fayetteville, Georgia. I've heard it from some children. And naturally, I'm talking about children who are not just younger, but even older. Because they still have parents as they're growing. By the way, you know the song Respect? Who is it that sings that song? I forget who it was. Rita Franklin? Okay. R-E-S-P-E-C-T. She made it popular, didn't she? You know who wrote the song? A man. 
it's just one of those songs, you know, women want the respect, and of course it goes on with our, our modern movement, but it was a man that wrote that song. Wanting that respect, if you will. We're told in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Wives, submit to your husbands, that even if some who do not obey the word may be won over without a word, by your chaste conduct, by your meek and gentle spirit, if you will. That is what Peter says by divine inspiration. Submit to your husband. Children, in the same way, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1, aren't told, respect your parents if they've earned your respect. This is the will of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. As Colossians 3 says, for this is right, or for this is in the Lord, for this is well pleasing to the Lord. Ephesians 6, 1 says, for this is right. And so we're supposed to obey our parents in the Lord, honor our father and mother, and, and so on and so forth. That's the will of God. God made us this way with these roles. And so what we need to do is we need to break through this communication barrier. And I remember in our Bible class when I was talking about the illustration that was used uh, by Dr. Uh, Egrich, where he was saying, you know, men, and he likes to use this illustration, men think in blue. They listen in blue. They speak in these, through these blue megaphones. And women are just the opposite, where they think pink. And when they speak, they speak in those pink words. And when they hear things, they hear it in pink. So when you've got blue talking to pink and pink talking to blue, it's not just going so well. And there are times when, when what a woman says and what a man says, and they're identical word for word, but when they say it, they mean two totally different things. And when I gave the illustration of... I have nothing to wear. I had men and women in the Bible class nodding their head going, that's exactly what he or what she thinks. Like, and I use this in the class, women say, I have nothing to wear. And you'll have 40 or 50 garments that they can choose from. But I have nothing to wear. Men say the same exact words. I have nothing to wear. Because he goes into his closet and there's nothing there. It's in the wash. Or it's all holed up and everything. And I have nothing. To, I don't have anything. And literally, there's nothing there. Two same exact words. What the woman is saying is it's time for shopping. That's what they're saying. I didn't know that. It took me years. I kept looking in the closet going, Junie, you're... Season has more than my entire five-year wardrobe. I have stuff here from college. <laughs> you have nothing to it. I didn't get it for years. We're wired differently. And as a result, we think, we speak, we listen differently. What we need to do, husband and wives, is, man, i got to try and understand from the other person's perspective. But the thing is, for us to do that, man, I'm telling you, it takes humility. It takes selfishness. It takes us promoting this concept that I'm going to try and understand you, not from my perspective, because I think blue. I'm going to try and think from your perspective. That's a difficult thing. It takes training. The same thing true for women. You cannot expect your husband, tell me, wives, 
Don't raise your hand. Just tell me after services if this is true. Have you ever said to your husband, don't you know what I'm thinking? Okay. Some nodded yes. I have one no. <laughs> I told Julie I wasn't going to use her in the sermon. I told her. Okay, I'm not going to use her in a the sermon. There was a woman <laughs> who said, sorry, honey, I can't help. I got, this is, this is true. Don't you know what I'm thinking? Don't you know what I'm wanting? If you told me, I'd know exactly what you're thinking and what you're wanting, huh? <laughs> I never expect you to know what I'm thinking. I always say, well, you know, here's what I'm thinking. We're just different. And we need to try to understand from your spouse's opposite sex perspective. When you do that, it takes humility. It takes selflessness to be able to do that. But if we are to do it, if we are to practice this, then here's what this looks like. I believe men, if we as husbands can sacrificially love our wives, I mean, put ourselves and our selfishness aside. It's hard for Mitch Davis to do. But if we do it, we promote an environment to be respected by our wives. That's not taking away the wives' responsibility to do it because it's the will of God. But what we do is we open the door to make it much better, a more conducive environment for our wives to respect us. And I'll say this. There have been anecdotal evidences of wives who verbally take the time to try verbally and practically to show respect to their husbands you see their husbands flourish. Because wives who respectfully submit to their husbands, even if some do not obey the word, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, you may gain a husband who expresses love to you in ways that that's what you want from them. I believe that's what Paul is saying when he wraps up that husband-wife relationship in Ephesians 5, verse 33. Nevertheless, husbands, love your wives as you love yourself and see it to it, wives, that you respect your husbands. I believe when we can do that, we will have a marriage based upon the will of the Lord. Honestly believe it, because that's what God's Word says. And so if you're wanting that, men, love your wives and wives. Respect your husbands. Practice that. I know it's not conducive to our modern society, but we don't live in the modern society. We live in the kingdom as citizens of God. And that's what we have as a very beautiful practice if we apply that biblically to our relationship.